Hello, readers. Coming up, it's episode number 213 with Eric Schwartzel on Red Carpet. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the current events and politics category for episode number 136 with Josh Rogan on Chaos Under Heaven. This is Josh Rogan, author of Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, She, and the Battle for the 21st Century. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Eric Schwartzel is the Wall Street Journal's Hollywood reporter and the author of Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Eric, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's my pleasure, Eric. So what was your goal with this book? My goal was to use the movies to explain China's ambitions for the world. It was clear to me that Hollywood had become this unlikely battleground that we saw the U.S. and China rivalry playing out in. And I thought, here was an opportunity to write a book that was not going to be another polemic against China, but would instead use something that every American has a familiarity with to explain this larger world order that's coming into shape. And you start out by going into the history of not just China and its relationship with movies, but also uh, how other countries have used film to propagandize their own populations. It would be disingenuous to act like other countries have not used movies throughout their history as a propaganda tool. How was Hollywood helping to desensitize white America to black Americans' role in society around World War II? Oh, that's a fascinating point to, to get into. So after the U.S. entered World War II, we saw probably the most blatant commingling of the American film industry with the American government in its history when directors like Frank Capra and John Huston started uh, going overseas, filming battles, and making movies that were then sent to theaters around the country to try to bolster patriotism. Um, this is explored in a fantastic book called Five Came Back by, by Mark Harris. But one of the details I learned from that book was that with more and more American men serving overseas, the government knew that this was going to mean that roles and jobs that had previously been inaccessible to Black Americans were going to become more accessible. And so they encouraged directors to make their audience, make their backgrounds more diverse, you know, put Black actors and actresses in scenes that they might not normally because they wanted to acquaint Americans with that kind of diversity and integration better off screen as well. It was one of the examples I saw where it was clear that almost immediately American officials realized that changing what viewers saw on screen often changed how they live their lives off screen. And China actually established a film bureau censorship board under Chairman Mao in the 1940s. And this led to them banning American movies in 1950. Why did they make such a move? Because China and the U.S. were quasi allies during World War II. 
Exactly. But I think under Mao, they really took an inward direction and, and Western influence in particular, or capitalist influence in particular, became suspect. And under Mao, Chinese art really started to take on a singular purpose, which was to serve the state. Um, Mao said in 1942, there's no such thing as art for art's sake. Art should serve China, be for China, by China, etc. And letting in some kind of Western influence would dilute that. And, and so there, was e there were even these examples I would find where um, if, if there was a painting that was a pre-Mao painting that uh, was just of like, a, like a regular Chinese vista, an artist under Mao might take it and paint a power line into the image so that it reflected better the prosperity under Mao and not the pre-Mao era of, of no prosperity. So, so I think it really helped inculcate this culture where the Chinese authorities and therefore the Chinese artists came to expect there to be a real messaging purpose behind any kind of art. And that, that continues to today. An important component to the modern story of Hollywood and China is how Hollywood really has become enslaved to the box office numbers that China provides upon international release. When did American studios really begin to see huge returns from foreign audiences that would occasionally even eclipse how much a film was making here in the U.S.? It started really in the early 2000s, and then about a decade ago, as China modernized and we started to see the construction of thousands of Chinese movie theaters, um, the Chinese box office just started growing at a clip. And it really was around 2009, 2010 that studios had a wake up call and realized that this country that until then they had treated as something of an economic afterthought was going to become the biggest box office in the world. It wasn't going to happen right away, but it would be an inevitable outcome because Ticket sales in the U.S. and Canada started to flatline around the same time while China was growing at a clip. So it didn't exactly take a Harvard MBA to realize where the growth was. And I think that um, starting with movies like uh, Avatar, which made more than $200 million in the Chinese market alone, um, studios started to see that this was a market worth paying attention to. And then in some cases, even greenlighting certain movies to get into. And prior to that, obviously, it requires China to actually allow those movies into its country to begin with. And that really happened in the 1990s. Why did they start to loosen up with regards to Hollywood entering their country during this decade? They needed the money. Um, so after the Cultural Revolution, movie theaters in China reopened. But the only thing to go see were these medicinal propagandistic movies that were being made by the government. And for a while, they were the only show in town. But then Chinese people who were moving into the city started to find better ways to spend their time, whether it was just watching TV or watching pirated movies or going to karaoke lounges. And so the theaters started to really struggle. And there was an executive there at Warner, who was stationed in the region for, for Warner Brothers, who said to a prominent exhibitor one day, you know, wouldn't an American movie, wouldn't some Western films really help boost your ticket sales? 
And that was a conversation that led to the first American movie since the Cultural Revolution being imported into China in an official capacity, which was Harrison Ford's The Fugitive. Hmm. Uh, By the same token, there were a couple of other movies in this decade that served as a sort of canary in the coal mine for China's influence on Hollywood. How is this uh, exemplified with a Martin Scorsese film on the Dalai Lama and a Brad Pitt movie about Tibet? Yeah, these are two movies that came out the same year, um, kind of dueling Dalai Lama biopics, uh, one called Kundin, directed by Martin Scorsese and released by Disney, and the other called Seven Years in Tibet, starring Brad Pitt and released by Sony. And this is three years after China's opened up to American movies to begin with. And so no one in Hollywood is working and making these movies thinking about China at all. But China makes it very clear very early on that these movies are going to be a problem because not only do they valorize a state enemy of China, but they also portray the Chinese invasion of Tibet. Um, Kundin in particular has some scenes that feature Mao as just as like this completely, this total buffoon next to this young and wizened Lama. And I, th- I think what was so fascinating was that the day that Kundin started filming, a phone call came into Disney headquarters saying that this was going to be an issue if the movie came out at all. And it was not going to be an issue for Disney Studios, but it was going to be an issue for Disney proper. It was going to be an issue for all of the theme park ambitions that Disney already had in the market, all of the toys that it was thinking could sell to Chinese children. Um, And the same thing happened at Sony. They got a phone call saying, this movie you're making about the Dalai Lama is going to be a problem. And not just a problem for your studio, but a problem for the electronics company that owns you. So you can imagine how disruptive that could be. And, and both studios had to end up releasing the films, but also had to thread the needle and make sure that they weren't kicked out of China forever. And they both studios after the films were released in 1997 were temporarily banned from the country, though. Yeah, Disney's relationship with China over the last uh, almost 30 years now is fascinating and one that we will explore a little bit later. First, though, why was Ang Lee the first Chinese director to break through into the mainstream with American audiences, Eric? It's a great question. I mean, I think part of the reason I I think that Ang Lee would himself answer was that he was he grew up in Taiwan. And so while a lot of his counterparts in mainland China were shut off from Western entertainment while he was growing up. Um, he was not, and he was, um, you know, raised going to the theater and seeing American films with his mother. And it kind of, it, you know, was was a an example of soft power at its finest. Became he became enraptured with America, uh, disappointed his parents by abandoning an academic career and moving to the U.S. to direct movies. And, and so I think that that, ex, that early exposure is in many ways what, what led him to, to come here. And then what was fascinating was how successful he was at uh, bleeding the two cultures together in movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. By the same token, though, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was a flop in China. That shocked me. Why was this? Yeah, no, I guess it's one of those things that shocked me, too. And then when you think, when you think about it, it's not that surprising, I guess, because this this movie, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I believe is still the highest grossing foreign film in U.S. history, hmm. um, was this just total phenomenon in the U.S. because it was so novel and new. We had never seen anything like that with 
um, you know, Chinese martial artists like flying through the air and dancing on trees and, and so on. And I think that um, what had made it so novel in the US was what made it quite old hat in China. Um, and, and, and a lot of the, the tropes, the martial art tropes that Ang Lee introduced to Western audiences were very, um, Chinese audiences were very acquainted with them. And not only that, they didn't even really like some of the changes he had made to them to kind of let them fit a more Western model, even, even down to issues like the casting of Michelle Yeoh, who kind of uh, emerged on the scene in the US through that film, but in China was considered a little bit of a has-been. Hmm. So an example of, of how those movies, um, those movies that work in China um, occasionally work here in the US and vice versa, but oftentimes filmmakers, I think, find it very hard to do anything that will work in both countries. What effect did China's admission into the World Trade Organization in 2001 have on Hollywood's presence and influence in that country? Well, so the, the China's entrance into the WTO really gave it an ubiquity in Western business from Hollywood to aerospace to cars to fashion to tech. Um, and it also, but it also turned Hollywood into something of an interesting symbol because at the time, everyone from Bill Clinton to Rupert Murdoch were saying that China's economic modernization was going to inevitably lead to democratic reform and that allowing things like Western movies and entertainment and the internet into China would inevitably lead to a kind of crumbling of the authoritarian structure and regime. That has not proven to, been the, to have been the case, but it also allowed it also sort of put China's economy on a turbocharge that enabled it to build. I mean, I, and I, I use that, I use that word literally build cities out of nowhere and build new theaters and expand rapidly its, its middle class and go from being something of a, um, you know, an economy that is just sort of making toys for the West and instead build up its own consumer culture. As you alluded to a little bit earlier, China and Disney had been in talks for a long time on building a Disneyland there, going back into the 1990s before finally agreeing on a plan in 2008. Disney, which had always required a foreign country to put the Disney Channel on its airwaves as a prelude for a theme park, actually waived that requirement while also accepting a minority stake in the park with 43% ownership. Why do they make such concessions there? I think the market was just too big to ignore. Um, you're right that there were concessions that had to be made. Most painfully, I think, for the studio was dropping its plans to bring its Disney Channel to Chinese airwaves because the Disney playbook had required on a Disney Channel kind of seeding the ground for um, things like a theme park to follow. You know, you can't just build a theme park and expect a bunch of kids to show up if they don't know the characters. And a TV channel is really the, the easiest way to do that. And uh, they quickly found though that it was a non-starter because communist regimes tend to be a little selective about what they allow on their TVs. And um, they just said, and, and they had this chicken egg problem where the, company didn't want to build a theme park before a 
TV station was available and the Chinese authorities wanted to just start with a theme park. And so it took a little bit of time, but they eventually found this middle ground where through things like movies and toys and even a string of English language schools, Disney was able to introduce enough children in China to its characters to justify that theme park being built. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, would you please expand on Disney English and what exactly this is? So Disney English was a, um, a very popular uh, string of English language schools that Disney operated in Chinese cities. Um, starting around uh, 2010 or so, there was this real effort in China to, uh, you know, a lot of parents, many of whom only had one children, one child because of the one child policy, um, would really put all of their focus into that child and try to educate him or her as much as possible. And one of the things that really sort of got to be in vogue was having your kid learn English. And so a lot of different English language schools popped up in, in Chinese cities, including Disney English, which was essentially, you know, the lessons you would come to expect in an English language school, the grammar, numbers, ABCs, that kind of thing. But it was all taught with uh, Disney characters. And so you might be sitting in a classroom that is Lion King themed and, you know, um, or one that is frozen themed and maybe the sentence you're learning is uh, Mickey wants an apple or, you know, Minnie is three years old kind of thing. And it kind of has, has dueling purposes. Certainly the kids are learning English, but they're also learning Disney too. Interesting way around the whole Disney Channel request. Now, Kung Fu Panda, which came out in the summer of 2008, was a huge hit, both domestically and internationally, and it broke records in China. The level of detail that DreamWorks went into making that film was impressive to learn about in your book. Considering how beloved this film was in China, Eric, how did CCP authorities feel about it? It sent them into an existential spiral because um, this movie, Kung Fu Panda, which was made by DreamWorks Animation without really a consideration of the Chinese market, um, you know, hard to, hard to believe now, but at the time, around 2006 or 2007, you did, it, would, it would be foolish to make a movie and expect to make much money in China. But nonetheless, they made this movie, Kung Fu Panda, and a lot of officials in China said to themselves, wait a minute, why is it a Western company that is taking our unofficial mascot and our one of our most famous traditions and making this globally appealing movie? Why, why wouldn't Chinese filmmakers think to do that? And they even started to reverse engineer the film and ask DreamWorks executives, wait, why did you decide to make the panda the son of a duck? And why, why would you make the panda, you know, overweight and stressed out? Like, why, like, why would you do these things? Like, we would never think to do that. And, and uh, leaders who really had these ambitions for soft power in mind started thinking, well, no, this is exactly the kind of movie we want to make, though, to introduce China to the world. So why didn't our filmmakers make it? And they even started drafting legislation and passing legislation to try and support a homegrown Chinese animation industry and try and catch up and, and make their own Kung Fu Pandas and export those around the world. 
from that allowance of the fugitive into China all the way to today, China has a pretty strict set of rules with regards to what it allows in films that can then be shown to its population. What are some of the things that are not allowed in movies before China gives it the okay for it to be shown in the red country? Well, I think it really depends on where the movie takes place because there's a really there's a lot of scrutiny of any scene that takes place in China because the China on screen is one of order, um, patriotism, development. Um, there really is not any blemish shown on screen if a scene is set in China. I'll give you a quick example. There's a there's a scene in a, the James Bond movie Skyfall in which James Bond uh, breaks into a building and as he does, shoots and kills a Chinese security guard. And that scene had to be removed at the request of authorities because it showed China in a weak position. Um, but then there are broader and I think deeper elements of certain movies that have to be removed. One of which is, uh, which came up in, in a sequel to Men in Black that came up came out several years ago. And you'll remember that um, the agents have this device they use when, when a civilian sees an alien in the Men in Black universe, they have this device that can scrub the memory from that person's brain. That had to be removed from the film before it could show in China because it became a metaphor that hit a little too close to home in a country where authorities want to control how people think about certain things. Yeah, I think one of the most telling paragraphs in this book is, quote, the censors keep China in a perpetually PG-13 world, one where drug use, naked bodies, and violence do not exist. Gay people stay in the closet or off screen. Whiffs of spirituality, including the cinematic portrayal of ghosts, do not abide in the People's Republic. Even time travel, with the creative license it brings to the historical record, is forbidden. I mean, my God, Eric, even time travel not allowed in China. That's crazy. I know they call it the Oliver Stone rule because they would <laughs> never allow a director like Oliver Stone to uh, to revise history. I guess Tarantino, too, would probably run into the same problem now that he's been he's been making these revisionist dramas as well. I guess it would uh, only be befitting to note that Hollywood has a history of accommodating to foreign countries and what they would like their audience to see or not see. As a matter of fact, there's an example of this involving Nazi Germany prior to the start of World War II, correct? That's right. It's, it's actually the strongest parallel I could find to the dynamic that exists between Hollywood and China today. And it, it really starts in the 1930s when the Nazis are rising to power, and it's but it's before the U.S. enters the war after Pearl Harbor. Um, there are several examples of movies uh, being censored or just killed altogether because they portray the Nazi party in a negative light or they explore the plight of the Jews in Europe. Um, and, and the reason that I think it is a, is a telling example is because there's, there's, there are tactics that the Nazi party used against Hollywood that, that China replicates today. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, in a lot of countries where there are censorship requirements like Saudi Arabia, the authorities really are only concerned with censoring movies for their market and, and making sure that their people do not see something they don't want them to see. China and, and about you know, 90 years ago or so, the, the Nazi party 
really policed movies everywhere. They wanted to make sure that if a movie was being made, that no audience around the world saw a portrayal or a theme that it didn't like explored on screen. So movies like All Quiet on the Western Front about World War One and the Kaiser were edited. And then that edited version was shown around the world or to avoid angering the Germans. Um, same goes for movies that were put into production in, in Los Angeles. You know, if, if a studio announced that they were making a movie that was going to be critical of Hitler or a veiled commentary on Hitler, Nazi authorities, before a movie could even start shooting, would threaten the actors associated and say, if you make this movie, your career in Germany is dead. And at the time, Germany was a significant foreign market. And so there was a real economic cost to taking a risk like that. What expanded China and Hollywood's relationship in 2012? There was a meeting uh, between then Vice President Joe Biden and his counterpart Xi Jinping, who was not yet president of China, but was the heir apparent. And the two men met in Los Angeles and negotiated an expansion to the number of movies allowed into China. So it jumped from 10 or 20 to 34 which meant that every major studio working in Hollywood today could all but guarantee that its biggest movies could get into the country. And, um, and not only that, but the amount of money that studios brought back from ticket sales in China expanded from 13%, which is, was really measly, to 25%. So this deal not only expanded the number of movies led into China, but it also expanded the amount of money that a studio could make there. And it all but cemented China's leverage over the film industry. And you also saw Hollywood try to get out in front of Chinese censors with movies going forward as well. Why is the 2013 film World War Z a good example that Hollywood was trying to get itself one step ahead of China by self-censoring? Yeah, exactly. I mean, World War Z, which which was written as a book um, and, and has a plot detail that that involves the flesh-eating zombie virus that's sweeping the world originating in China. When the movie was filmed, that what detail a far, was- What like, a far-fetched idea, Eric. Exactly. I mean, this, there's a reason this, 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 this example seems more prescient by the day. Um, the, the author of the book, Max Brooks, um, had said that he made that choice quite deliberately because he was thinking, where would a virus originate and spread undetected? And he thought it would need to be in a developed authoritarian country like China. And when Paramount filmed the movie version of World War Z, they kept that detail in, but then prior to its release, removed it um, because they worried that it would jeopardize the film's chances to play in China. And, and, you know, the movie ultimately didn't even play in China, so it was all for naught, but it's, an, it's a telling example because it's a case where no one got a memo from Beijing about this movie. They just did it themselves without being told to. And there are not only examples of Hollywood going out of its way to avoid pissing off China. They were actually inserting things in films specifically to try and placate the prospective audiences in China. That was a four-minute scene in the 2013 film Iron Man 3, an example of Chinese audiences feeling exploited in a manner that they called getting soy sauce. That's right. Yeah. So, so in uh, Iron Man 3, this is a scene that I think probably a lot of American viewers ultimately weren't aware of. 
um, there's this rather superfluous moment where Iron Man, I guess he's injured or sick or he, he needs medical care. And lo and behold, a Chinese doctor and his Chinese assistant come in and treat Iron Man using a combination of Western medicine and Eastern medicine. Um, not only that, the Chinese doctor is drinking Chinese milk uh, from a popular brand that paid to be placed in his hand. Um, it was this really just baldly uh, obvious effort to appeal to Chinese audiences and I guess get Chinese moviegoers to say, look, it's our movie star helping save the American hero. But when Disney executives saw it, they were like, no one's going to buy this. Everyone's going to see right through it. And they made sure that the film, that scene only was shot and shown in the Chinese version. So um, audiences around the world didn't see it, much to the chagrin of Chinese officials who really wanted that scene to be in the movie shown worldwide. But it was an example of I think Hollywood just getting really silly really fast and trying to appeal to the Chinese market. And as you said, um, the Chinese audiences who are not dumb can see through the pandering and, and took to calling it getting soy sauce. And, and anytime they would see one of those actresses pop up out of nowhere, they would say that she was um, a flower vase because she didn't really have much else to do. <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> term there for sure. Uh, now, how did Hollywood's relationship with China change after Xi Jinping, uh, who you accurately call the country's most authoritarian leader since Mao, took over as president in 2014? So he, um, I think at first was seen as another possible sort of step toward democratic reform, but that has certainly not been the case. And he made it very clear that he would expect his film industry to come underfoot and even started giving lectures about the role of art in Chinese society that were direct echoes of Mao's lectures on the same subject. He would even travel to the same location where Mao had given his lectures on art and speak on the anniversary of those lectures. I mean, the, the, uh, how do I say this? It was not subtle what he was trying, the, the parallel he was trying to draw. And um, I think since then, we've seen studios and actors and actresses increasingly be called upon to do the government's bidding. And this happens in a couple different ways. One of it, one of which is, you know, an, a famous actor like Jackie Chan might be called one day and told, you're going to make a Chinese propaganda film. You're gonna star in a Chinese propaganda film. We've got an anniversary coming up of the People's Liberation Army and we need to make a movie about it. So, you know, <laughs> here you go. Um, but then there's also kind of like, I guess, softer forms of, of propaganda films. And oftentimes studios will make these films, like maybe, maybe it's something like a movie about uh, China's the first Chinese expedition to summit Mount Everest something like that that's like not not straightforward propaganda but certainly like a rah-rah pro-China movie um, studios will sometimes make those movies as a way of building up political capital and then kind of function in a bit of a one for you one for me model um, where the government will allow them to make movie make movies that they make a lot of money on if every once in a while they also you know can say hey we're doing our part for you too and what is the belt and road initiative 
Belt and Road Initiative is a collection of hundreds of investments and deals and projects, mostly in the form of infrastructure that are reorienting global trading routes and kind of becoming a bit of a 21st century update to the Silk Road. And the, the Belt and Road Initiative has given China an ubiquity in, in parts of the world. I mean, it's not uncommon to go to parts of Africa and stay in hotels that will print receipts in Mandarin or to, as, as I did in Nairobi, drive down a road called Beijing Road and find yourself at an apartment complex called the Great Wall. It's given China this incredible ubiqu ubiquity in those parts of the world. And I think also an incredible amount of power because it has built these train stations, built these highways, built these railways, and in some cases made these countries more indebted to, to the country. So the Belt and Road Initiative, though it's happening out of sight to most Americans, if it succeeds, would be one of the most significant kind of returns to Chinese trading supremacy since the pre-opium war days. After becoming pros at scrubbing any negative imagery of China and catching on to the idea of soy saucing Chinese audiences, Hollywood started asking how it could effectively work China into films. How was the Transformers franchise, and more specifically Transformers Age of Extinction in 2014, another major step in Hollywood kowtowing to China? Yeah, I think this this example, this 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 Transformers example is is such a case study in and just how silly it got because the the studio behind the film Paramount wanted to just stuff as many Chinese elements as possible into the film. They they had product placement that made no sense. There's a scene in which the characters are in Chicago and they have to raid a convenience store where lo and behold, they discover Chinese protein powder. <laughs> and um, there was even a reality show competition held in China that cast four Chinese actors and actresses in the film. About a third of the movie filmed in China. And there's even a scene in which Hong Kong is being destroyed by the giant robots and Paramount inserted a scene that allowed Beijing officials to come to their rescue. And also the example of uh, what happened at the premiere after a faux pas that Angelina Jolie had a few weeks before that is another great story in this book. People just need to purchase it to check that out. Uh, Disney's willingness to play the self-censorship game was also apparent around this time. Uh, how, was this, uh, how did this play out with Doctor Strange? Yeah, this was one of the most prominent examples because when, when Disney was adapting uh, Doctor Strange uh, from the comic, Doctor Strange has this kind of monkish advisor who in the comics is portrayed as, as frankly a rather stereotypically orientalist Fu Manchu type character. Um, and when the movie was being adapted, they certainly knew that they couldn't put that on screen because of racial sensitivities, but they also thought that it might be an issue because this character is Tibetan and it might sort of trip up those tripwires that, that, you know, things like Kundan and Seven Years in Tibet had taught the studios to avoid. And so the solution was ultimately to cast Tilda Swinton in the role and make the monk Celtic instead of Tibetan. And it avoided the problem of angering Chinese officials, but it angered American viewers who saw it as kind of a whitewashing of an Asian role. 
Kung Fu Panda 3 enjoyed a short run as the top earning animated film in China, but why was it quickly outdone by Zootopia, a movie that did very little to placate to the CCP with Chinese elements? Yeah, this was a this was a lesson. This was a hard lesson for Hollywood to learn, which was that Chinese audiences didn't necessarily need you to bend over backwards to appeal to them. Really what they wanted to see were good stories told well. And, and so Kung Fu Panda 3, which has all these scenes and did all this extra work to try to appeal to the Chinese market, even going so far as to dub the movie twice so that the animated characters' mouths move to the Mandarin better than, than normal animated films. Um, it did well, but not nearly as well as Utopia, which had, I think, one scene that kind of nodded to China, but in a very subtle way. But it actually, but it instead was a really more successful film because it thematically connected with audiences. It told the story of I don't know how how much you how well you remember the the Utopia plot, but there's a it stars uh, it's about this young bunny this very ambitious little bunny that moves to the big city to become a cop. And what's fascinating is a lot of Chinese people had very similar trajectories in their lives. They grew up in the countryside and then at some point moved to the city. And that thematic resonance, which Disney really didn't foresee when it released Zootopia into the Chinese market, turned the movie into a giant hit. And, and also, um, you know, eventually would give rise to things like even like a Zootopia attraction at Shanghai Disneyland. What made 2017 a seminal year for the Chinese film industry through a homemade sequel that translates to Wolf Warrior 2? So Wolf Warrior 2 would go on to become the highest grossing movie in Chinese history when it was released. It made more than $850 million dollars. And the movie is about a Chinese soldier who is sent to Africa to help rescue villages from extremist terrorists and an evil American mercenary named Big Daddy. And this is a story that Americans know very well. It's kind of the Rambo template of the, the soldier who's got to go it alone, get the girls, say, you know, kill the bad guys, save the kid, that kind of thing. But it was a really novel thing for Chinese audiences to see. And it came at this fascinating moment in Chinese history because Chinese leaders had been telling their citizens for many years that this was going to be China's moment. This was going to be China's century and that China should stop apologizing for itself on the world stage. There had been you know, decades and even centuries of what the Chinese perceive as humiliation on the world stage since the opium wars. And here was a Chinese hero on screen pounding his chest and unapologetically announcing himself as Chinese to the point that um, any other nationality in the movie doesn't stand a chance. I mean, the Americans just look like complete buffoons it, or worse in, in the film. At one point when one of the, uh, one of the women call the U.S. Embassy, they get the answering machine. I mean, there's really just uh, really blatant attempts to cast China as the hero that America used to be. And so when the movie came out, it inspired this just massive reaction to the point where audiences were known to burst into applause when uh, the credits would start rolling or even start singing the national anthem. 
Has that become an increasingly common portrayal of Americans in movies made in China? It has. I, I think especially as tensions rose between the U.S. and China during the Trump administration, a number of Chinese movies were thrust into production about the Korean War, for instance, um, and about, um, you know, putting America in, in, in a position where its soldiers, its leaders, its officials look more like the villain to China's hero. Between 2017 and 2020, the U.S. accounted for only 17 of China's top 50 highest grossing movies of all time. 27 of that top 50 were Chinese movies released in that three-year period. Just how panicked has Hollywood become in that time, considering the amount that China is making for its films on a movie-to-movie basis? Yeah, there's a concern that Hollywood got played and that this market that a lot of business plans were completely oriented around is just too unpredictable and and also doesn't need Hollywood anymore. Um, because as you said, these homegrown Chinese domestic films are doing so much better than the Hollywood options and more consistently. So there's quite a bit of consternation and anxiety in Los Angeles today because a lot of movies are either to be released or still in production that are costing so much money that a Chinese release is all but um, necessary to turn a profit. That's why you see John Cena making an inadvertent uh, slip of the tongue and having to apologize in Mandarin, I guess, huh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it's really not outside the realm of possibility that an actor like John Cena, who gave an interview last year in which he implied Taiwan was its own country, there's there's a reason he has to quickly rush to apologize. And it's because that slip of the tongue or or that personal opinion, what, whichever one it was, um, might get his movies banned from the country for the foreseeable future. Who is Fan Bingbing and why is she a case study at the lengths Xi's China will go to ensure that nobody from the richest businessmen to their biggest movie stars are above the government? Fan Bingbing was a Chinese actress who was, think of her as China's version of Angelina Jolie or Jennifer Lawrence. I mean, as famous as they come. Um, she had been famous since she was a young woman and also took on a relatively um, powerful symbolic role in China. She would very proudly declare, you know, I don't need to marry rich, I am rich. She was a very, she was quite a, a feminist role model for, for a lot of young Chinese girls, very glamorous. She had tried to cross over into American entertainment uh, several times, really to no avail. But then in 2018, booked a movie starring the three, uh, starring Jessica Chastain, Lupita Nyong'o, and Penelope Cruz called The 355. And it was going to be this movie that was essentially going to be like about a group of uh, female secret agents who can sort of travel the world and, and, and win, save the day. And so uh, she's cast in this film. It looks like it will be her biggest Western role yet when she is busted in China for tax evasion. Um, she had been reporting one salary to the government while pocketing another and paying taxes on the far lower one. She disappears from public view. It's actually a bit of a precursor to what we saw with the tennis star Peng Shuai. No one knows where she is. 
she's in government custody, but she's not heard from for several weeks. From Hollywood's perspective, this presents a problem because the movie she was supposed to be filming is in production while she disappears. She eventually reemerges and uh, insists that she has learned her lesson. And to my earlier point about building up political currency, announces that she's going to start starring in a bunch of pro-government films. The 355 by this point has all but wrapped production when she reemerges. And the studio has no choice but to fly her to Los Angeles and film her scenes in front of a green screen with the director. And I have to tell you, I went to see this movie when it came out last month. I think me and about 14 other people did. <laughs> and the scenes starring Fan Bingbang are very obviously green screened. I mean, there are so many times where it's like, why is she the only one in this shot? Or why is she shown from the back so often? There's a lot of really creative body double work in the movie because of this whole tax evasion scandal that kept her offset for several weeks. Richard Gere became an ardent supporter of Tibet in the 1990s. Has China made him pay dearly since then with regards to the roles that Hollywood is ultimately allowing him knowing that uh, his films will not be allowed in China? Yes, absolutely. So the last major studio film Richard Gere um, made was in 2008, around the time that China's box office power really came into focus. And since then, he has had a very hard time getting cast. He actually hasn't had a hard time. He's had an impossible time getting cast in major studio films because casting executives know that he's too radioactive for the Chinese market and that a movie starring him will not get past the censors. The COVID-19 pandemic added a new level of tension to U.S.-China relations in general. As it, retains, as it relates to film, why has Disney been in as bad a position with this as any Hollywood studio? Well, Disney finds itself in a really tricky spot because it has spent so much time and money investing in the Chinese market. And so now, really for the first time in its history, Disney and other studios find themselves at odds with their government because politicians on both sides of the aisle have identified this kind of complacency or concessions to China as helping fuel a rival's rise. And Disney, for instance, when it released the new live action version of Mulan, ran into this problem because it was revealed, actually it was revealed, it was just noticed that this movie had filmed in Xinjiang, the province where um, the Chinese authorities have built and maintained a collection of labor camps for the Uyghur Muslim minority that lives in the region. Um, when China released Mulan with scenes from that, from that region, and not only that, but with credits in the film thanking the local authorities for their help in filming there, Disney suddenly found itself having to, to defend to American critics all the work that it was doing in China over the past decade and a half. Well, one of the all-time great pieces of propaganda uh, propaganda that we call American cinema is, of course, Top Gun. came out in the 1980s. The U.S. Navy paid a hefty price to get that film made while also uh, allowing it to serve as a 90-minute advertisement for the Navy. 
How have we seen China's influence play out on the upcoming Top Gun sequel, which has now been pushed back by a couple summers? It's a fascinating bookend because you're right. I mean, the, the original Top Gun was about as patriotic as they get when it comes to the movies. When they were filming the uh, sequel, though, and Tom Cruise suited up with his bomber jacket, it had a couple patches on the back that were going to prove to be a problem. One was of the Taiwanese flag, which implies a Taiwanese sovereignty that Beijing does not support. And the other was of a Japanese flag, um, a country that China has had tensions with for, for many, many years. And so Chinese financiers on the film told producers that they should take those patches off the jacket. And when the poster and the commercial and the marketing materials were revealed, those patches were gone. And so this movie that in 1984 symbolized a total sort of like rah-rah cinematic patriotism in 2018 had to face a market reality where Maverick's bomber jacket was going to have to adhere to the one China policy. Hmm. And final question, Eric, has China figured out how to create global appeal for its films? That seems like one of the last major steps before it really does uh, take over with regards to the cinema industry. Yeah, that's the last leg of the race, and it's proven to be the most difficult. I think it depends on where you look. I, I think that Hollywood executives who don't think that Chinese movies will ever play in China have a point. I mean, Americans have traditionally been, you know, discourteous to, to foreign entertainment, but there's a big wide world out there. And the Belt and Road Initiative that we spoke about earlier provides a bit of a distribution network. So if you go to parts of Africa, it is not uncommon to see Chinese satellite dishes that have been handed out carrying Chinese movies and TV shows. I spent an evening while reporting this book watching Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon with a family outside Nairobi. Um, there is certainly already more of a coexistence of Chinese and American cultures in those parts of the world. Eric Schwartzel is the Wall Street Journal's Hollywood reporter and the author of Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Eric, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this important chronicle. Hey, thank you. It's been my pleasure. <laughs>